So let me go ahead. We will stand for the reading of the scriptures, but go ahead and be seated for just a moment because I wanted to uh, kind of lay a little groundwork before I read from 1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to be looking, or I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, we're going to begin in a moment in verse 1, but I just want to frame it a little bit before reading. Uh, this is, um, this is um, the second letter that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, it's a place, if you, and, and of course, as I'm speaking to a seminary group, it's a, um, it's a place that he went on his second missionary journey. Uh, he has come up through Asia Minor. He's come across Turkey. He's gone over into Europe, first in Philippi, and then uh, he's come down the Ignatian Way to, uh, to the town of Thessalonica. And uh, it was the major town in Macedonia. It was, uh, it was a place that would have been very prominent. In fact, the, um, the, Thess the Thessalonians gave, the city gave the Romans a run for their money around 200 BC for control of that region. And after the Romans uh, finished off Hannibal, then they came over and um, dealt with the Macedonians. But, uh, but it's a prominent city and there is a church there. There is a church that uh, has become established, and there are many things that Paul says about it that are extremely uh, encouraging, and he's very encouraged, and yet it's a church that lives in the midst of a very pagan culture, a very immoral and godless and non-Christian culture, and one in which Christians even um, sometimes uh, suffer uh, very acutely for being Christians. And it is the last letter, really just the second of two, but it's the last letter that he writes to the church in Thessalonica. And so uh, we're going to read much of what he says in his last chapter of this last letter in 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's uh, stand together now for the reading of God's word. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to follow our, how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with sober hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, 
doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray now that you would search our hearts, that you would show us um, ourselves and our need in your word, that you would, um, Lord, give grace that it would be proclaimed with clarity and with power, but Lord, just as much that by the working of your spirit, you would press it home to our hearts. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, please be seated. So um, there are a couple of people here that heard this sermon recently or heard this text preached recently. Uh, I admit that what I very often do when I'm invited to come over and speak at um, Greenville Chapel is take something that I've done recently, but then uh, maybe target the applications a little bit more at a, uh, at a group like this one. And uh, again, what we're looking at here is the last chapter of what Paul writes directly to the Thessalonians. And someone has said you can break this book up into sort of three segments by the chapters. In the first chapter, he's dealing a lot with the persecutors of the church. In the second chapter, false teachers. And in the third chapter, uh, quite a bit with what some have called the idlers. But uh, idols probably not the best way to understand it. It's those who are living an undisciplined or an unruly life. We'll come back to that. But chapter one, uh, there, there are numerous references to people that we would probably say are outside the church. They are the persecutors that are persecuting Christians. But then the second chapter, we're dealing with false teachers and with things that are, that are destructive from within the church. But then here, we sort of deal in chapter three with the struggles that we still have as Christians in the church. That is, with our own need to be faithful uh, to the Lord uh, rather than neglecting what it is that he calls us to do. And um, someone has said that you really can break this chapter into two major headings, how to pray and how to live. So you've got Christians living in a pagan culture. The church has become established. It's probably in many ways really thriving. And yet they still need to pray and they still need to live. Same for us. We need to be a people that, uh, that pray biblically, but that live for the glory of God. And really, as he says in verse 13, to not grow weary of doing good, to keep doing these things, to, to not grow weary of living prayerfully. We could say it this way, of living prayerfully for the glory of God. Don't grow weary of living prayerfully for the glory of God. And first, if you look at verses one through five, that's where he deals with how to pray. And how are we to pray? I think it's very interesting. And uh, I'm doing a Bible study in Philippians on Tuesday mornings, a 630 Bible study. And uh, you know, one of the things that you note in the prison epistles is Paul's writing from prison, but he's not praying. He's not really asking prayer primarily to get him out of prison. It's that he might speak boldly as he ought to speak. And so uh, while Second Thessalonians is not a prison epistle, uh, notice the way that Paul asked to pray. Finally, brethren, 
pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. That the word of the Lord would spread rapidly, literally that it would run or picture it running out. Uh, imagine uh, you're on a flat parking lot with a huge tub full of water, a garbage can full of water, and you push that garbage can over. And when it falls down, the water runs out and it runs in every direction. It spreads, it spreads out. And so the idea here is Paul's praying that the gospel would spread out, that the word of God would run out in every direction. And then uh, using uh, sort of the personification of a victorious runner, that it would be glorified, that it would be honored. So the image here is of the, is of the word of God running out, uh, spreading out in every direction, and then being exalted to a position of honor or glory. We can imagine the uh, uh, the winning runner victorious in the middle of the platform. So he's really praying for, uh, we, we can infer from that, he's praying for the evangelization of the Roman Empire. He's praying for the evangelization of the whole culture. But then he goes on and he says, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now here Paul could be, um, people have speculated different things. Is he praying to be delivered from the Jewish opposition that has hounded him, hunted him, hunted him down from city to city, even, uh, even left him to be uh, stoned and left for dead? Um, possibly also speaking about the, the Gentile persecutors. Uh, he's been flogged by Gentile authorities. They're the, the Gentiles certainly... Um, marginalized Christians, view Christians with suspicion in that culture, sometimes even support uh, the persecution of Christians? Uh, is he perhaps talking about some of the false teachers that rise up within the church? Because not all have, literally in the Greek, not all have the faith. They might name the name of Christ. They might even be seen in the church, but not all have faith. Well, we know all of these were challenges. All of these were threats to the early Christian church, uh, Jewish opposition, Gentile uh, persecutors, even false teachers within the church. But the idea here is of a malevolent, aggressive antagonism. Pray that we would be delivered from these, from these malevolent, aggressive antagonists. But Paul is not He's not pessimistic. He's not cynical. In verse three, he uses a play on words. He just said, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Uh, Paul is confident in the Lord's faithfulness. Uh, he, he, he commends the Thessalonians, but he also is confident in the way that the Lord will work in them. And then in verse five, there's sort of this implicit prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And when he's talking here about the love of God, does he mean the love that God has for us? Or does he mean the love that we have toward God? But if we look at the passage and see the parallelism in chapter or in verse five, the steadfastness of Christ of Christ is, is pretty clearly talking about the degree to which Christ was steadfast. So, so what he's saying is love in the way that God loves and endure in the way that Christ has endured. Really, that 
think about it. You get a glimpse of the gospel right there in verse 5. There's a glimpse of it. Think about the way that God has loved us. Not because we are lovable. Not because we're lovely. Not because we're more virtuous. Not because, uh, you know, as Reformed folk, we know God hasn't loved us because, and set his love upon us and called us to himself because he looked at us and saw, you know, out of everybody, this group has the most potential. He has set his love upon us because God is love and because he's a merciful and a loving God who graciously saves sinners and even displays his strength in our weakness. Uh, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then also, we are to endure and to remain steadfast as Christ has remained steadfast. And how, how steadfast was Christ? How much did Christ endure? Well, he endured all the way to the cross. He despised the shame, and yet he endured the cross. He offered himself up on the cross to bear all of the shame, all of the wrath, all of all of the um, condemnation that his people deserve. And yet he bore it all himself on the cross for our salvation. And so that's the how far how far did Christ endure? Well, I mean, on a superficial level, we could say until it killed him. But again, we understand when we because we know that that it was an atoning work on the cross, he he endured. He, he was steadfast and endured even to the point of bearing the infinite, eternal wrath of his heavenly Father for the sins of his people. And so that's the model of steadfastness. That's the model of endurance. So there's a lot here in, in how we are to pray. Don't grow weary of living prayerfully for the glory of God. So consider first how to pray. How do we pray? How should we pray? You know, again, we learn a lot about how we're to pray here. Probably the place that most of us would say we go immediately to see the most about how to pray is the way that Jesus answered the request, Lord, teach us how to pray. And if we go and we look at that Lord's prayer, that disciple's prayer, how are we told to pray? Well, we're to pray, hallowed be thy name, that God's name would be hallowed in, in our hearts and in the hearts of others, that our eyes would be lifted to, to recognize his holiness, to, to reverence him for his holiness, to rejoice in his holiness, that, that he would bring still others to see that he's a holy God and that they might be brought to praise him as well. We're to pray that his kingdom would come, that he would grow his church, that, um, that he would bring more people to saving faith in Christ. And again, as Reformed folk, we ought to be of all the most optimistic because we believe that he really is saving people in spite of themselves. That there are more people in the kingdom today than there were yesterday. That there will be more people in the kingdom tomorrow than there are today because of God's sovereign mercy and grace in saving a people for himself. We pray that his will would be done on earth to the very degree that it is in heaven. 
That is for our sanctification. Uh, we, uh, we saw this recently at Fellowship, but going back to 1 Thessalonians, that the will of God is for our sanctification so that we would become more like Christ, that we would, that we would grow to spiritual maturity, that we would grow in holiness. And, and again, it's, um, again, I'm speaking to a group that knows this. Sometimes the Bible talks about definitive sanctification. Sometimes it talks about progressive sanctification. And definitive sanctification is that we are set apart as holy in Christ. But that progressive sanctification is that we keep in, in our actual lives progressively dying more and more to sin, living more and more to righteousness so that we become really and truly more and more like Christ. The scriptures put both of those things in front of us when we look at the whole of God's word. And again, coming back here to 2 Thessalonians, we're to love as God loves. Think about the context. They are to love as God loves. Now, these are people that are suspected and marginalized by the culture. Because remember, if you didn't participate in the pagan, the pagan ceremonies of the day, you were seen as a bad citizen. Maybe, yeah, they had citizens and subjects. But you would have been seen as uh, not a team player as someone who was suspect, and so they would be marginalized. Sometimes they were physically accosted. Who knows what all they, they endured in, uh, in Thessalonica, but, but in that context, they are to love as God has loved them. They're to love others. They're to love one another as God has loved them. And how long are they to keep doing that? Well, Christ is the model of their steadfastness. It's Valentine's Day. Um, if you didn't know, there's still time to recover before you go home. Maybe. But, um, you know, sometimes in, uh, in, in doing premarital counseling or something like that, when we're looking at Ephesians 5, you know, we're familiar with, you know, submit to one another and wives to husbands, but then husbands love your wives as Christ has loved the church. And I sometimes say jokingly to men, how long do you have to love your wife this way until it kills you? But really, uh, that is the way that we're to love others, the way that God has loved us with the steadfastness of Christ to the very end. That's how we're to pray. We're to pray for those things. But then in verses 6 through 15, we see how we are to live. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. So this is interesting. It's really pretty fascinating to think about how Paul says we are to live before him and how we are to deal with it when somebody is deliberately, obstinately refusing to live in obedience to Christ. And you notice what he, what he says here in verse 6 is he says, keep away in the New American Standard. Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life 
and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. He says here, avoid, shun, steer clear of a certain type of person. And what is that type of person? Well, it's the one who leads um, an unruly life. The same root word is used in verse 6 to say an unruly life. In verse 7, to speak of an undisciplined manner. In verse 11, to say an undisciplined life. And the idea here is of something that is unruly or chaotic or in disarray. It was a phrase that could be used of military units that had broken ranks and no longer were functioning the way that they were to function. They, they just had disintegrated into disorder. If you think about it, even in the culture of that day, uh, the Greeks fought with the phalanx. When you had a, a number of men standing side by side and each man covered himself in part with his shield and he covered the man to his left, there was a Greek phrase, why do I fight? I fight for the man to my left. And then the Romans, on the other hand, had somewhat different tactics, but still had units that functioned in cohesion with overlapping shields, with different types of weapons. And, and in both of those systems, you had to fight with cohesion and unity and order. If you broke, if you fell apart, if you broke ranks, if you even just started to, to let gaps happen, if you were dropping your shield, now the man at your left was vulnerable. And so um, there, if a, if a unit went into disarray or became disorderly, it just kind of fell apart. Well, that's the idea here. It's of a, but it's of a life that's falling apart. And, and why, in, in what way is it falling apart? Well, Paul goes on to say, um, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. One commentator says that um, tradition is almost a dirty word for Protestants, you know, because we, uh, we look at perhaps Roman Catholicism that puts so much emphasis on the tradition of the church, and we say, well, no, we need to look at the word of God, not the tradition of the church. But um, and, and we might even think about where Paul talks, or where Jesus, rather, talks about the traditions of men that the Pharisees are teaching. But here, what Paul's talking about is not unbiblical tradition. He's, he's talking about the things that they would have learned. Uh, they might not have been written down in the scriptures yet, but they would have learned them from Paul and his companions, and they would have understood that they were to live in a certain way. And what is it that they, that they saw? Well, in verse 7, Paul says, we didn't live, we didn't act in an undisciplined manner. Um, then he goes on in verse 8 to say, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Paul understands, and we can read elsewhere in Paul's letters, he understands the right of those who minister the word to receive their living from the word. He knows that we that we have that right. But here in the case of the Thessalonians, he and his companions have deferred that right for a particular reason. So they have the right to be supported, but they're not taking advantage of that right. In fact, what they're doing is they're they're working they're working a day job so to speak and then they're they're also ministering the gospel. Well, why are they doing that? It's because there's a particular problem in the, uh, in the Greco-Roman culture of that day, and it's, it's something that was called patronage. 
Now, some people look at this and say some of the Thessalonians weren't working because they had a um, they were mistaken about eschatology. They thought Jesus was coming back next week or next month, so they had stopped working right now. But numerous commentators say, no, there's probably something more broad and cultural going on, and it's the problem of patronage. And in the Greco-Roman culture, in, in that area, that day, you had patrons and you had clients. And basically, patrons were very wealthy, so they could give patronage. They could, they could support others, and they would, uh, they would support clients. So you had patrons and clients, and the patron would provide food and money and, in some ways, representation, and in return, the patron would, would receive loyalty and honor from the clients. And one person even said that the, the practice sometimes would be for all the clients to show up at the beginning of the day at the patron's house just to tell them loudly good morning when they came out of their door. And so um, the, the patron was seen as more and more important based upon how many people were standing outside their door waiting to uh, loudly greet them with a good morning. And the patron was in, was in many ways, just culturally, was considered obligated to continue to provide for the clients unless the clients did something to destroy that relationship. So the, um, the patron got some things from it, but was obligated to some things. And the clients, of course, they had to do certain things. Certainly, they had to pay a little bit of homage and, and give a little bit of respect and maybe even go along with the wishes of the patron in ways, be a supporter for the patron. But um, they also benefited um, themselves. And here, what's interesting is Paul kind of blows apart that institution of patronage by telling the clients that they're not to depend on the patrons and by telling the patrons that they're not obligated to keep providing for the clients. And then he makes reference to a, a passage in verse 10 that's often quoted, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Now, Paul's not talking here about somebody who's unable to work. Obviously, he's not talking about somebody who's elderly or who's infirmed and doesn't have other options. But for the one who won't work, for the one who defiantly refuses to work, for the one who... Um, is not debilitated uh, or, or injured or infirm or, or whatever it might be, but for the person who just says, you know what, I, I'm happy with it working the way it works. I'll just keep showing up and saying good morning, and I'll just keep taking the, um, the handout that comes from the patron. Paul says, uh, Paul says this is not the way we're to function. And really, this goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. You know, God made us to, um, to bear his, he made us in his image to exercise dominion for his glory in his creation. And there is honor and purpose and dignity in that. But think about it. What was the job of our first parents? They were farmers. They worked, probably farmers slash ranchers, but they worked really hard. And so Paul says, and, and of course, the, the problem that's being created by these that are not doing that is what happens if you take a young, energetic, able-bodied person and you don't give them enough to do? 
They find things to do that they don't need to do. These people, because they're not busy, they're becoming busybodies. Because they're not staying occupied with what they should be doing, they are now actually, it's not just that they're not doing the good things, they're creating problems because uh, they have too much time on their hands. And again, for Paul, this is ultimately a spiritual issue. They need to be laboring for the glory of God. Uh, as we see elsewhere in the scriptures, you know, let him who steals, steal no longer, but labor with his own hands in order that, in so many words, I'm going to paraphrase, he's providing for his own needs and has an abundance to share with others that are truly in need. And so um, Paul is confronting this idea of patronage, and he's um, he's calling God's people to work faithfully. And for those who won't, what what does he say? Again, I think it's pretty fascinating, especially if you think about in our culture today. Let me back up. I'm almost 60. Not that old to some of you. Some of you are going, man, that, that's old. Um, you know, I can remember when public shame was just a school day. I mean, it was, um, you know, coaches belittled you. If you got in trouble, you got chewed out in front of other people. If you went home and told your parents about it, you were in bigger trouble. And um, we almost now, we, we look at things like shame and we say, that's completely not appropriate. But you notice what Paul, well, again, um, notice Paul says, not only don't give a handout, but publicly shun that person. Don't have anything to do with that person. Look down in verse 14, so that he will be put to shame. I mean, that's strong. Think about that. Publicly dissociating with somebody with the intention of shaming them. But is that where he ends? No. Why is it? It is to bring him to repentance. Even in verse 15, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In the, in the ancient world, uh, we generally don't realize the degree to which they saw people fitting into two categories, one of two categories. There were your friends slash family, and there were your enemies. There were those that were part of your circle, and everybody else was suspect. There were, there were those that were part of, uh, they were your in-group, and everybody else was, was an out. And and so when somebody, if if there ever became a rupture between the patron and the client in that in that time, there was a phrase something like, "If any man is not welcome in my house, he is my enemy." There was no there was no neutral ground. There were there were your friends and your allies, and there were your enemies. So Paul is even correcting a cultural thinking here in verse 15 when he says, but you don't regard him as an enemy. This is not about making him an enemy. This is not ultimately about dissociation and shame. It's about repentance. Admonish him as a brother. Everything that he said is to bring someone to repentance. So again, the problem is that there are those in verse 11, they're living an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting as busybodies. That's that's the problem. What's the solution? Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And, and really, what's the synopsis of all these things? But as for you, brethren, verse 13, do not grow weary of doing good. So 
There's how to pray and there's how to live. And we're to not grow weary of living prayerfully for the glory of God. You know, when you think about all of this, I talked a lot about patronage, but we probably don't. We might think, well, we don't have patronage today, but I would I would say the patronage we have today is a product of being such an affluent society. You know, whether it's governmental or familial or something else, we 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 have such um let's just be honest, immense wealth that we've accumulated for multiple generations that it makes it possible perhaps um, to facilitate somebody not working where, um, again, I'm, um, I'm from a family that huge jumps in the generations. My dad was 42 when I was born. Uh, his father was in his 60s when he was born. So my grandfather lived during the Civil War. That's the, the size of the chunks. And um, and when I hear the stories, and I, you know, my dad was one of twelve. There just wasn't a lot of enabling that went on in that context because they were there. There was a lot of work to do. There was a lot of work to do on the farm. Uh, they were still poor, and there just wasn't. You know, this was the 1930s. There there weren't those kind of options. But now um, it's easy for us. Um, perhaps to to not have to do the things that some generations had to do. But what's the what's the problem beneath it? I think we actually have to go beneath it um, because it's something beneath the the surface level or the more immediate. What's the problem beneath it? And it is a problem that they struggled with it two thousand years ago. We struggle with it today. The problem is that we 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 want to avoid what's unpleasant, and do what's easy. I would venture to say, let me insult you and then explain my insult. You're all a bunch of hedonists. Now, this is what I mean. We're all a bunch of hedonists. Um, Hedonism as a formal philosophy said that we are to minimize pain, maximize pleasure, but ultimately try to balance it in a way that we live a virtuous life. Now, when we say hedonism today, we just mean people that are just wicked. But hedonism actually was avoid what you don't want to have to do, do what you like to, but do it in such measure that you actually are a pretty good person. And there is a degree to which all of us want to avoid the daily grind of the Christian life. I mean, in some ways, what Paul is saying is look, you, you, you need to live, you need, you need to work and live your life in a quiet fashion. Look at verse 12. Now, per, such persons, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. There was a book written years ago, I think it was called Radical. You know, I can't remember who wrote it, and I've not read it, so I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it too badly. But, uh, you know, in some ways, Today, we, we use the word radical to mean extreme. Uh, radical actually means from the root, from the foundation. And so to be radical means we should be foundationally different from the very root of our lives. That's true. But a radical life doesn't necessarily mean an extreme life. And, and extreme, or the way people use radical today, is, all, is, is often meant as exhilarating sort of epic. You know, sort of X Games 
adrenaline junkie type thing. And the reality is that that's not most of us. That's not most of the people that you'll pastor. Most of us will live most of our life, most of the time, doing things that are really pretty ordinary. Not extreme, not exciting, not exhilarating, not epic, but just every day. And that's not a bad thing. For most of us, most of our lives, most of the time, we'll get up when the alarm goes off. We'll get the kids fed. We'll get them started in school or dropped at school. We'll go to work. We'll do most of what we do uh, with not a lot of recognition for what we do. And we will do that for years and years and years. That's the way most people will live the Christian life. And that's not a bad thing. There's value in that quiet work. Uh, There's value in changing the diapers and writing the essays and looking over the spreadsheets and uh, teaching our own children, teaching others in Sunday school, serving in Um, you know, in in various ways, very often behind the scenes and encouraging others that are are serving in that way and participating in the life of the body. And that's that's just what most of us will do most of the time. Again, I preached this passage on Sunday and this morning after uh, after Bible study, one of the ladies in the study came up to me and she is a lady who's retirement age now, single lady, Um, she was a single mom, but her house has now been empty for decades. And yet she teaches, um, at fellowship, we start teaching our kids pretty early and, um, we have a preschool Sunday school class and we're even looking at the part we, we had a nursery Sunday school class. I don't know exactly what was being taught in the nursery Sunday school class, but the, um, the preschool class is, is learning just basic fundamental things and, and it's been a real blessing to see the effect of that in the lives and hearts of a number of our young people over the over the years. But this lady came to me and she said, you know, I really appreciated and was encouraged with the sermon because sometimes I feel like I haven't really done much of anything. And um, and she said, you encourage me that for many of us for and she said, what was that most of most of us? I said, well, most of us most of our lives, most of the time. Most of what we do is really going to be pretty quiet and pretty ordinary. And she said that was really encouraging. And I tried to say, well, let me encourage you with this. Uh, One of the things that that I see now, I have grown children. They're all um, adults. And um, what I see is the effect of decades of them being taught the scriptures and pointed to Christ and not just at home, but even in their church family. And so they're maybe bragging on my kids a little bit, but but what I notice is, and they would tell you, not with arrogance, but just when I asked them this question, of your contemporaries, how many would you say have a general overview of the scriptures? And what they would what they would tell you is, Dad, they don't know a lot. I mean, some know a lot. Some know as much as my kids, more than my kids. But they said a lot just are not familiar with the basic overview of the scriptures. Um, Most haven't really been instructed with a theological framework. 
but there have been um, ladies at Fellowship Church, uh, Miss Barbara and Miss Anna and Miss Elizabeth and now Miss Leona that have been faithfully instructing our young children and others all the way up through in the truths of God's word. And um, the Lord is blessed. The Lord has used that. We need to not grow weary in doing those things. We not, need to not grow weary of living prayerfully for the glory of God. You know, we uh, someone has said we live in a day of celebrity. And if we're honest, probably all of us sort of in our in our minds at times, we sort of um, we think that it would be cool to be a celebrity or we envision ourselves being some kind of celebrity. And, um, you know, it de depending upon who you are, you might look at different celebrities. You know, some people are going to look at Calvin. Some are going to look at Spurgeon. Some are going to look at J.C. Ryle. Some are going to look at Billy Graham. Some are going to look at Tim Keller. Some are going to look at R.C. Sproul. You know, some are going to look at, um, at Ian Hamilton. You know, some are going to look at, you know, name it. I mean, it, it just people tend to, sort of come up with names and then and then they venerate those names and they think it would be neat to be like that person. There's some wonderfully gifted people the Lord has used in the work of his kingdom, but most of us won't be the celebrities. Most of us just won't be. Most of us will be those who labor faithfully and um, Lord willing for a long productive um, service to those that will live lives, most of them will live lives that will be pretty um, ordinary. And yet we need to encourage them and we need to encourage ourselves in how to pray and how to live. We need to not grow weary of living prayerfully for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do thank you that you are a great God and a glorious God. Father, we see in the pages of your word that you call us to live faithfully before you very often in, in, um, in quiet and simple ways. Father, we look at the way you grew your church in the book of Acts, and we, we see, Father, that um, there were some who were named and mentioned and so many that, um, that we will not know of them until we arrive in glory. And so, Father, um, give us grace that we might look to you, that we might labor with contentment and faithfulness where you've placed us, that we might honor you, and that we might um, seek, Lord, always to give you the glory in whatever we do. Uh, Lord, again, thank you for your faithfulness, your strength shown in our weakness. Lord, work even through us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.